Hello everyone and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about vulnerability management. Now, I've been doing some reading. I tend to, uh, I don't really run on a script when I do these podcasts. I just write some frantic notes of the, the thoughts that are in my head to talk about. And I was doing some searching online to see what does this term vulnerability management mean to different people and how do different companies deal with this problem? So what is it that I'm talking about? It's just the tracking of vulnerability information and how organizations do it. The reason that I've brought this up to talk is because the last few companies that I've worked with have had some strange vulnerability management uh, systems in place, be it they've got a, a series of spreadsheets that are doing the job for them, but are maybe not the most developed system, or be it that they are just not tracking these things in a way that maybe a more mature company would. To say more mature, not necessarily bigger, because I think there's a, a bit of a misconception with some people where they think that the larger organizations have naturally got all of these things sorted, right? They've got enough budget, that they've got enough resources that all of these things are just uh, done for them. And in my experience, that's not necessarily the case. So when I say more mature, I just mean companies who have, for them, worked through this problem and come up with an ideal solution. What is the problem? Well... Companies have lots of different systems, lots of different services and assets, and those services and assets might have vulnerabilities on them, but how do you keep track of them? So I was working with a company kind of this month and talking to them about things like the way that they run vulnerability scans, the way that they run penetration tests, uh, and what they do with that information at the end of a penetration test. And uh, what they do is they receive the kind of traditional PDF report from their penetration testing provider that gives them some vulnerabilities, some remedial action, and they just from top to bottom work their way down. Anytime they get to a vulnerability that is uh, difficult to remediate, there's, there's a lot of different reasons why it might be difficult to remediate. Uh, an example might simply be that one of the systems is managed by a third party, so they have to push the remediation off to the third party and that might be more involved to manage it. Um, whenever they get to a problem like that, they effectively just skip over it with a, a mental note to come back to that vulnerability in the future. And whilst that works for them, and the vulnerabilities do at some point get addressed, or I hope they all get addressed, all of the ones that I saw did, it, it just seemed like a really weird way of, of managing this data and making sure that they're making progress, that they're not reintroducing old vulnerabilities and that they're accurately able to, to um, effectively talk about the changes that they've made and, and why they've made those changes. So I started writing some notes down and covering things that you might come up against in vulnerability management where companies either don't do it or maybe they just make a default choice that isn't the best thing to do, that isn't necessarily the, the best option. So uh, my first thing is vulnerability aggregation. And as I, as I run through these, kind of uh, take a mental note for your organization and kind of think of like, how are you addressing these things? 
because many, many, many companies don't address these in the best way. So let's let's run through some, but, but vulnerability aggregation is the first problem. But what I mean by this is you have lots of sources of vulnerability information. That's not like uh, new patches coming out and things like that, but I mean specifically things like you have a vulnerability scanner, it tells you when it finds an issue. You have penetration tests, you'll get a report at the end through some means. Maybe you internally discover vulnerabilities. How do you get all of that data so that it's in the same place? Now, a lot of the companies that I've been working with that are in the the smaller end of the spectrum, probably at the moment, actually, my favorite companies to work with are kind of that 70 to 150 employee size, because they tend to have a lot of resources to play with, you know, that they're growing, budgets are increasing, but they don't necessarily have this uh, this backlog of, well, we've always done this because uh, with increasing in scale, a lot of the things that they're trying to work on, trying to improve are, are maybe new to them. One of the companies of this scale, they were running vulnerability scans and they're just keeping all of the data in the scanner itself. And when they had a penetration test come through, the penetration test was a PDF report, but they, they never like married those two things together. And I think this is a weakness because maybe those two things are picking up on the same vulnerabilities or highlighting related weaknesses that you could address in some other way. Or maybe they are doing things like grading vulnerabilities differently. Uh, and being aware of those grading issues is, is super important. And I mentioned um, internally discovering vulnerabilities. What I'm talking about here is uh, a member of staff, be it someone like the IT team, um, picking on something uh, and saying, oh, look, there's a, there's a weakness here. Or it might be something like a, a non-technical member of staff stumbling across something that that um, turns out to be a, a security issue. I, I guess the easiest, although not high impact example of this would be something like um, a member of staff looking at an internal application and that internal application's SSL certificate has expired, something like that. They might not know what that means, but they might report it to IT, and ITT, the IT team might consider that as a security issue, as you probably should. It's not a great idea if your certificates are expired and people can't verify them easily. So if all of this data coming in from all of these different sources, and how, how do you actually aggregate that together? I mentioned scoring. Scoring's a... <laughs> Scoring's a funny one. I had a discussion internally here recently with um, the the method of scoring vulnerabilities in terms of um, actually coming up with a priority list for vulnerabilities. Now, uh, a lot of companies will rely on something like the CVSS system. I'll talk about that in a second, should you be unfamiliar with it. But I imagine most people are familiar with CVSS, or at least heard it if they're not intimately familiar with how it works. Most companies go with CVSS just because it's the default. It's not necessarily the best. And sometimes when I'm writing penetration test reports, if I ordered the vulnerabilities by what I think is the most important, as in my professional opinion, which you should address first, and then I ordered it based on CVSS, this score out of 10, they, they wouldn't necessarily be the same. So why do companies use this scoring system? What's the benefits of CVSS? Well, just in case people haven't come across this, the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, it's a score out of 10 for how bad a vulnerability is. Generally, when we talk about it, we are only talking about the base score. The, the base score is the default score that comes out when you take a look at a vulnerability based on how bad it affects confidentiality, integrity, and availability of a system. It can be further modified through things like environmental um, subscores. So you can adjust those scores using a couple of extra metrics. Uh, those extra metrics are rarely used in my um, experience, but a, a thing to bear in mind. 
why, why do so many companies use CVSS? Well, probably because so many companies use CVSS in that kind of weird chicken and egg thing. Um, it's a standard. It's an industry standard. A lot of platforms will score vulnerabilities using this um, scoring system. Many of your common vulnerability scanners will give you vulnerabilities with a CVSS grading. Why is it not necessarily the best? Well, sometimes the way that it scores vulnerabilities is unfair to that vulnerability class. This is hopefully getting better, but back when it was CVSS version 2, which is the old version now, um, the way that it would grade vulnerabilities could, could sometimes be confusing. But in general, for certainly for CVSS version 2, you have this idea of an impact against confidentiality, and it would be like high or low. Does this strongly impact confidentiality or not very strongly impact confidentiality? And that might not be granular enough for you to um, come up with an ideal score for you know, how bad is this uh, vulnerability. So if you imagine, for example, um, some some low uh, information disclosure vulnerability. Hey, this system is giving information out, which might be useful to an attacker, doesn't serve any uh, use to a common user. So you should probably, you know, stop this, probably hide this information or, or make it so it's not um, so obvious. Now, if you compare that to uh, very confidential information being disclosed, you know, something like <laughs> the system has a page that lists credit cards or something, the, the way that you can imagine, like your, your mental view of disclosing some information that might be useful to an attacker and disclosing something which is directly confidential, you, you probably want to be able to track both of those things as a company. And you might wish to address both of those things. But just a small amount of confidential data leak can, can mean such a, such a wide thing. And certainly the previous CVSS scoring system didn't address that so well. There's also some weaknesses around things like um, cross-site scripting for um, how you actually grade that. Cross-site scripting is a bit of a funny one because it affects, uh, certainly you can do things like virtual defacement, so affecting a user's view of the application without necessarily affecting the application itself. So uh, some people would get confused around things like, is that an integrity compromise there? Because you haven't changed the content on the Survey. You haven't changed the contents of the file, but changing a user's view of that, it might have uh, a similar effect. So some people uh, struggle with that, and then there's whole manuals behind it of, you know, what does high mean, what does low mean, those kinds of things. Um, so CVSS previously had these weaknesses that have maybe been addressed in the newer versions. I think hopefully most people are now using CVSS version 3, if you are using CVSS. But over the last few weeks, I've been talking to people, and not many people have seen that CVSS version 3.1 is in fact out. So it's just another one of these things. Why are you using this scoring system? Is it the best scoring system for you? Or is it just, well, we've always used it or because our scanner uses it or something like that? There are alternatives, something like the Common Weakness Scoring System, CWSS, that I'm not going to speak highly or lowly of. I'm just going to say, hey, there's other ways of grading vulnerabilities that maybe you want to check out. Maybe they work for your organization uh, better than the alternatives. You should at least take a look at your options, right? And of course, you have the security expert, or, or in most contexts for me, the penetration tester's opinion on how bad this vulnerability is. And, and that really, really depends on, well, how are you grading it? Now, you could say that your um, high, medium, low score should be inherently tied to the CVSS system. 
Uh, and some people prefer that. I know some types of um, compliance testing mandate that, that high means Sirius S7 or above, medium means Sirius S427, um, those kinds of things. And, and that's okay, but if you're using the CVSS base scoring system, that might not necessarily be taking into account the actual exploitability. How easy is it for this vulnerability to be exploited? Something that a uh, penetration tester could bring in very easily. Now, I, I mentioned earlier there, there is um, exploitability scores, and certainly for CVSS version 3, that's fairly granular around things like um, has exploitation been demonstrated? Is there public exploit code or is this more of a in theory also talks about things like um, what fixes available. You know, is it an official patch or is it a workaround? Those kinds of things. So the, the newer CVSS scoring systems are are better for those things. Um, but you have to check out those those subscore metrics, right? It's no good just using the CVSS best scoring system and then complaining it's not ideal if you don't check out all of its options. But for for me as a pen tester, one of the things that that I do get frustrated at is that thing I mentioned a second ago of high can mean different things based on context. My, my example that I've written down in my little notepad here is, is missing patches. Missing patches can be a, a critical issue, but it isn't always. It depends what patch is missing. And I think sometimes when, when you hear the term patching, some people kind of implicitly in their mind think, oh, Windows patches or, or, or maybe operating system patches if you've got a, a multi-OS environment. And we say things like, oh, you need a, a rigorous patching policy and we need to make sure things are up to date. And people go, oh, yes, you know, we run Windows update or however you manage those WSOS or whatever. Um, and that's cool, but that's not the only kind of software update that's available. You know, you have... Client-side software, your PDF readers, web browsers, those kinds of things, but also server software and application software. So uh, an example you might not have thought of is, is things like um, the programming language that you're writing in. So for example, um, jQuery, if you are producing web applications, is jQuery up to date? Now that may matter very little or it may matter a lot, depending on if there is a vulnerability in jQuery itself. In the same way that if you're missing a Windows patch, what does that allow? Does that mean your Windows operating system is not using the, the best encryption algorithm? Maybe it's using a slightly weaker encryption algorithm? Or does it mean that there is a remote code execution, full compromise vulnerability in your systems to which there is exploit code publicly available? I don't know when that's happened. Good example, probably WannaCry MS17010. If you're unfamiliar with Windows patches, MS17 refers to 2017, 010, the 10th patch of that year. MS17010 was a very important patch. That's the WannaCry vulnerability, right? It's the um, the ability to remotely compromise the machine, and there is exploit code available. That's much worse than some of the other things. So just having a score for missing patches and just saying, oh, anytime we're missing a patch, it's a high, or maybe a medium, whatever, however you want to grade it. Having that fixed score isn't isn't necessarily the best thing. We should be looking at what is the actual vulnerability and how does that impact us? How exploitable is that? And I think some companies as well would be um, happier if you were to look at things like, well, contextually, how relevant is this for us? Um, if there's a vulnerability in Exchange's POP service and you are not using the POP service but are using Exchange... Maybe that patch is just not relevant to you. If it fixes something that you don't have enabled, the actual exploit 
might not, you know, the vulnerability might not be present in your system, even though you're missing a patch. So something to think of, scoring systems, there's, there's a lot of different ways of grading them. In the very least, you should be considering the impact, what's the worst thing that happens if this vulnerability is exploited, and then also considering some kind of exploitability metric, be that is public exploit available, be it has it been demonstrated, or is in, in theory vulnerability, is there a proof of concept, that kind of thing, considering those. Um, and then bearing in mind that all of the systems that feed you vulnerability information, they might not agree on that. Oh, one more thing on CVSS scores, actually. Uh, I'm not going to comment necessarily on why this happens, but you do sometimes see vulnerabilities in common databases. So things like uh, the National Vulnerability Database, NVD, which tracks uh, vulnerabilities. You might see some vulnerabilities in there that have a CVSS uh, score that you don't agree with. Maybe it's something like a vulnerability that allows for a minor information disclosure and it's got as a 10 out of 10. Um, you might look at that and be like, how on earth has this come about? I won't comment on how that is. It, it, it could be something like the people who entered the number into the database made a mistake or maybe there's something there where the researcher who initially grades the vulnerability is incentivized to give it a higher score because it makes the vulnerability look better on their CV when they list their CVEs, their vulnerabilities they have discovered. Maybe it looks better for them if they list them with higher CVs or scores. It could be anything, right? I'm not going to comment on that, but sometimes these databases... The CVSS scores are that their risk scores aren't necessarily reflective of the real world or certainly not reflective of your environment. Sometimes, like I said, vulnerability scanner might give you one CVSS score, a penetration tester might give you a different CVSS score, and whilst they are supposed to be standardized, they don't. In the real world, they're very often not. So how do you aggregate all of this data, all of this uh, list of vulnerabilities in, in disparate um, systems. How do you grade those vulnerabilities? Are you using CVSS? Are you using CWSS? And then taking that further, how do you actually tie that information back into your systems? So do you have just a list of vulnerabilities as vulnerability scanners commonly give you, which is essentially an impact order with your criticals at the top and your lows at the bottom, and you just arbitrarily work your way through? Or do you have that information somehow tailored towards the criticality of the system? Now, some people might be thinking, ah, our vulnerability scanner can score, uh, can list vulnerabilities not only by um, severity, but can list vulnerabilities by IP address or something like that. And yes, that is arguably better, but it's not quite what I'm getting at. Uh, why would listing vulnerabilities by IP address as opposed to severity be better? Well, you might have internal knowledge where you know what? Some systems are more important than others. If you have a vulnerability that allows an attacker to remotely compromise a machine, the overall impact of that vulnerability will differ based on what that machine is. Is it the printer? Eh, could be bad. Might have some confidential data on it. Or is it your central data source system, your SAN? Uh, that would be much worse, right? You can you can see what I'm getting at here. The assets themselves can alter the criticality of these vulnerabilities, and that's another thing to consider. And it's very, very rare for me to see companies that can give me a list of vulnerabilities, um, not by severity, not by IP address, but by the actual importance of that asset. I would take that one step further as well. And I would say, instead of grading things by the um, importance of that asset, can you group assets together into services? 
Now, so, sometimes we we think of kind of servers as as just being standalone uh, standalone devices, and and they very rarely are. A good example of this would be where where I go on site to to do a um, a penetration test, go, go to work with a company doing something like. Uh, inside a threat kind of pen test. Like, hey, if we had a malicious member of staff on site, what could they do? And one of the things that the company might ask is for us to test a specific system. We are worried about this database because this database includes all of our confidential information. And then they give you a scope or an, authentic, um, an auth form, which is like our legal permission to test, right? The, the legal permission to do the hacking thing. And on the authority to test document, I might just have a single IP address listed. You can test this database because we want to know, is this database vulnerable to hacking? And, and the problem with that is on modern systems, you very rarely log into a single system because of single sign-on. The most common way of thinking about this would be, um, how is authentication to this database handled? Is it through Active Directory, through a domain controller? If it is, and you're saying that I am only allowed to hack this database and effectively out of scoping of the domain controller, either intentionally or maybe just through a mission, if the domain controller is not included on the authority to test form, then I will legally really struggle to do any hacking on it. Then that's a weakness, right? And the same thing applies when we're tracking vulnerabilities. You need to know not only the importance of the asset, this asset is important because it has all the confidential data on it, but that assets dependencies or really what I'm building up to here is a collection of assets that make up a service you could go really extreme if you wanted to you, you could be able to tell me things like oh this asset is part of this service and this service depends on all of these other servers but also things like air conditioning power those kinds of things right you can take it to um, a much greater degree than what I'm talking about here and there's benefits to that if you'd like but in in its kind of uh, minimal form it's just grading things based on services as opposed to just what IP address are they sitting on. Most companies can say, oh, that's a workstation or that's a server. Servers are more important. But very, very few companies that I've worked with are able to say, for this service, like our finance department, our ability to pay people, uh, what systems does it use and what vulnerabilities exist in those systems? And tying that right back to assets, vulnerabilities, type of test, how old that test data is, those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a thing to consider. When you when you have all of this data together, it, it makes the approach to remediating, remediating vulnerabilities way, way more effective. You're not just working down a list of vulnerabilities based on criticality, but you're working down a list of vulnerabilities based on how impactful they would be to your organization. Now, a good example of this uh, from the kind of, from this year of working with one company, a company contacted us and they said that they'd had a data breach. Now, this isn't necessarily the area that we operate in. We pretty much strongly focus on, on penetration testing, but it's not uncommon for us to be talking to companies about incidents, things like we're doing a pen test and we realize that the system has been previously compromised and having to have those awkward conversations with customers like, hey, do you know there's been other attackers here? Now, maybe that's just a, a really messy pen tester from another company or maybe it's a previous compromise. I was working with one company and they said that uh, they had had a breach. They weren't giving any details away, but they'd had a breach uh, and they wanted us to come in and uh, assist them with that breach. And we explained, you know, we don't really do incident response. We don't really do forensics. We can help in certain areas, but, you know, penetration testing is our core focus. So, you know, what is it that you're looking for? 
Uh, and this this company said, well, you know, they've had a breach, and if they restore their systems, they they don't want more vulnerabilities to to suddenly come out. You know, they don't want to put all of this effort into to remediating, running from backups, those kinds of things, and then just get hacked again. It's like, you know what, that's a completely sensible idea and that is definitely something we can help you with. We can take a look at the way that you're architecting your systems. We can take a look at the way the systems are built, look for vulnerabilities and help you harden these systems so that once you're done with the uh, remedial work, you can bring these things safely back online. Awesome. A very interesting project to work on. But as we're doing it and you're working through this kind of uh, scope of the company and they're saying, oh, you know, we got, we've got a breach, we've had a breach. That, that could be so many different things, right? Is that a member of staff has stolen some data? Is that someone's hacked your web server off the internet? Like, what's happened? And, and it turned out that it was just a ransomware attack, right? Ransomware attacks, they're, they're, hopefully everyone is aware that they're very, very common. Whenever anyone says ransomware, I guess like post-2017, I, I now have a different initial reaction to ransomware. I think in kind of early 2017 and prior to that, if somebody said we got hit by ransomware, my initial reaction would probably be to laugh just like, oh, this is such basic malicious software. It's not interesting. So it's encrypted some files. You know what? Restore from backup and move on with your life. And thanks to WannaCry and NotPetya and SamSam and these really effective ransomware campaigns, just my whole view on ransomware has changed now. I'm not going to dig into it, but the point being, my second question when a company gets hit by ransomware is usually a pause followed by how many machines because I've previously worked with some really, really big breaches, and it, it wouldn't be surprising for the company that I'm talking to to give me a figure in thousands. And the way that you would address a, a ransomware infection in the thousands of endpoints is probably quite different to the tens of endpoints. Anyway, talking to this company, how many endpoints have you got infected? And the answer came back. I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was something like four got four endpoints infected. It's like, oh, okay, that's that's not so bad. So, you know, you're doing the due diligence, you're just, you know, checking things out. Have you got a, a minor breach, but it's, it's not so bad, you know? Uh, what is it that's concerning you? And the company said, that's the finance department. That was what got hit. It was just the finance department. Now you can imagine this will have been something like uh, the finance department received a phishing email, they opened it and, and got hit by ransomware, and that, that's why they got um, compromised. It, it could be a targeted attack where somebody has specifically compromised the perimeter, hunted out where the finance machines are and infected those machines specifically. The likelihood um, changes greatly here. There's some comment to be made about threat modeling. But it was interesting that just the finance department got hit. And, and this is what really got me thinking about grading vulnerabilities based on service. What are these machines delivering to your company? Because you maybe only need one or two key machines to get hit, and then this impact becomes much worse. You know, hey, a work session gets hit by ransomware. That's bad. And domain controller gets hit by ransomware. That That's much, much worse. Maybe that's less common, but you can understand from this finance example where, you know what, you can probably see a path of exploitation where an attacker would be able to target that. And the impact on that organization is much greater because of the machines that are hit. I'd say there's probably a, a, a comment to be made about threat modeling here. What I'm talking about when it comes to threat modeling is which threat actors are likely to be targeting your organization and what are the capabilities that those threat actors have. 
How does this affect your um, assets and their stance? That could be a thing you build in as well if you were to take this kind of perfect vulnerability management system to as far as you can logically take it. You probably should be building in things like threat modeling, building in not only the vulnerabilities that you have on your systems, but um, how that affects your asset stance. Anyway, what was I talking about? We have aggregating vulnerability information. We have grading vulnerabilities and not just based on an arbitrary out of 10 because some database somewhere says so, but the actual impact to your organization and including exploitability. And then I mentioned grading uh, vulnerabilities based on not which, not the severity of the uh, vulnerability in isolation, but how it affects a specific service. Once you've got all of this information, you can imagine that your uh, vulnerability management program, your actual remediation effects will be way, way more effective. But a another thing that you might find is easier is, is executive reporting. Uh, and what I mean by executive reporting is, is, is feeding that information back up to, to the board. And it's the board who are very often the ones to some degree in charge of remedial action. I know a lot of companies don't like this fact, but sometimes you've got to go to the board and say, you know what, we need some money to address this issue. And trying to explain to the board the details of a vulnerability can be can be really difficult. But if you're trying to give the board a rundown of your security stance, and you can do that not based on some arbitrary uh, metric of, of vulnerability severity, but you can do that based on the impact against specific services, then, hey, I would say that that's way, way more effective to an organization. So just something to consider. <sighs> How do we categorize vulnerabilities? That's another thing that I should probably mention. Um, a lot of companies uh, try and categorize vulnerabilities based on um, some arbitrary class. I would, I would personally say, um, just stick with the services idea. If you can say this, this vulnerability affects this service, that that's... that's um, probably ideal. When it comes to categorizing vulnerabilities, I, I do understand why some companies might want to track this as an additional thing. I haven't mentioned it previously, so just to kind of quickly cover that. What I'm talking about with um, categorizing vulnerabilities could be where you're trying to see, have these vulnerabilities come about before? Is this a new issue? Some patch has been released where a vendor or a supplier made a mistake and a vulnerability was introduced? Or is this something that you've built in-house where you've made a mistake? And you want to track what that mistake was so that in the future you can make sure that you're making less mistakes of that nature. So an easy example would be if you're, if you're writing web applications, maybe you'd want to track vulnerabilities based on something like the OWASP top 10. So you can say, of all of the vulnerabilities that we have discovered in the last six months, how many of them were a OWASP top 10 A1 or an OWASP top 10 A2? These are broad categories of vulnerability classes. Um, I can understand why that information would be useful. Uh, but again, it's the same problem that we had earlier with CVSS in terms of... Um, what categories should you use? So, so I naturally default to the OWASP top 10, just, just in case anyone's not heard previous podcasts, isn't familiar with the OWASP top 10. Uh, it's a listing created by an organization called OWASP. That's O-W-A-S-P. They're a not-for-profit 501c. They gather information about vulnerabilities, uh, their impact, prevalence, and exploitability, and they come up with this list, which is the top 10 vulnerabilities. Uh, I, I love the OWASP top 10 in terms of its uh, impact on awareness, 
in terms of uh, helping developers find somewhere to start with software security. Like, uh, we want to do a security, where do we start? Well, the number one vulnerability might be sensible. The thing that I dislike about the OWASP Top 10 is its inherent weakness in that it is a list that stops at 10. Uh, what about number 11, right? That's the that's what I'm trying to bring up here. Um, in terms of awareness for a company to to begin learning about vulnerabilities, it's perfect. But if you're trying to categorize vulnerabilities and include all possible options so that you don't just end up with most of the things ending up in a miscellaneous box, maybe the OWASP Top 10 is not the best. Um, a good example here, of course, might be something like cross-site request forgery. Cross-site request forgery, uh, a common uh, web application vulnerability. What does OWASP say? Something like uh, 5% of websites are affected. That that might sound like a, a small figure, but consider how many websites there are, and then 5% is a lot of websites. Um, the reason that I, I jump set straight to cross-site request forgery, or CSERF, as I will refer to it, is because it's not in the OWASP top 10 anymore. It used to be, the OWASP top 10 comes out roughly every three years, uh, the last version, as in not the most recent, but the one before, was 2013. And CSERF was number eight. So not the highest vulnerability, but still in itself a top 10 vulnerability. In the 2017 version, it's no longer in the top 10. So if you're trying to categorize vulnerabilities based on their position in the OWASP or something like that, that's not going to work. Also, that top 10 is web application vulnerabilities. There is a separate top 10 for mobile application vulnerabilities, which is uh, broadly similar, but considers some of the things like local storage in a different way. Um, doesn't cover those. What about infrastructure vulnerabilities? Those kinds of things. If you're trying to squeeze things into the OWASP top 10 that aren't necessarily directly web applications, you'll struggle and you'll end up with a lot of things in miscellaneous or a lot of things kind of squashed into a category they don't belong in. Another approach might be something like um, common weakness enumeration, CWE. That's a much broader classification set, which has um, many, many more categories of vulnerability. It's a, it's a lot more granular. The problem there is it's a lot more granular. and There's, there's like thousands of CWEs uh, based on specific classes. And in fact, the OWASP Top 10 is featured within the CWE list. So it's the OWASP Top 10 is a subset of that, that bigger list. So it's another thing to consider. If you, if you are trying to track vulnerabilities in that way, maybe you'll struggle. I, I, I do understand that there is a value to that. You want to you want to track to see if you're introducing a lot of the same kind of vulnerability. Uh, and maybe there's a, a training issue there, or maybe there's a technology issue where um, your tool sets aren't picking up on it, or your, your developers aren't um, enough aware of that issue. So that's a thing worth tracking, right? But again, categorization is a difficult thing. Whew. Anyway, I'll stop ranting about uh, vulnerability management. It was just something that I've picked up recently. My my call to arms for this week, though, uh, I'm really curious for, to hear from you guys. How are you tracking vulnerability information? And I've, I've got effectively two questions for you. The first is, do you have that level of granularity that I've described here? Could you, if you wanted to, get a list of vulnerabilities from your systems per service? Could you say this service is very critical to us? What vulnerabilities affect it? Or do you just have one master list based on severity or one master list based on uh, IP address or something like that? Um, how far have you taken this vulnerability management thing from a maturity point of view? Uh, and my second question is, 
how are you tracking all of this data? Are you using some kind of uh, platform that you're paying for, like a software as a service model or something like that? Or are you like what a lot of companies in that smaller bracket are, where you've just got a selection of spreadsheets where you're trying to just deal with this data? I'd be very, very curious to hear from you guys um, how you're keeping track of, of all of this information and making sure it's all up to date. So let me know over social media. I'd be very, very curious to hear um, if anyone has the, the perfect solution to this problem. And thanks for listening. And I will talk to you in the next podcast. <laughs>